Father, there are so many distractions that can take place. Our hearts can be just torn from one place to another. But we want our minds to be calm and focused so that we can see the glories of the cross, so that your spirit can just move our hearts. And so give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that when we leave this place, Father, we can say, use me as this year begins to begin. So thank you, Father, for what you're going to be speaking to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at chapter 3. For through Daniel's friends, we are going to see faithfulness in the midst of a fiery trial. It's a familiar passage because I'm sure the uh, children in children's church could say, I know that story. But you probably do. But we need to come to it as a, with a fresh pair of eyes. And as you turn to Daniel chapter 3, I want to begin by saying, every single day, each one of us makes decisions. Decisions on what to do, what to wear. Decisions that begins to form our character. And as we begin to form our character, it forms our behavior. And usually, to make those decisions, some of them are determined by external pressures and internal principles. Sometimes there are no pressures at all. Open the refrigerator, what do I want to eat? Sometimes we have uh, the pressure of, uh, I shouldn't eat that because I shouldn't eat that. Soup doesn't fit. Sometimes uh, those external pressures come from our friends. Sometimes uh, they come from work pressures. Sometimes they're family pressures. But the decisions that we make need to be built on the internal principles that we put within our hearts, within our minds, because that is the framework on how we make our decisions. Because sometimes it's very easy to give in to compromise if our internal principles aren't really nailed down, because the pressures of life can be difficult. And so when it comes time to do your taxes and you're, and you're there and you think the governments are a bunch of bloodsuckers because they take all your money, which they do, you have a choice on how you want to fill those things out. And so you can give in to pressures or you can do what we're supposed to do. And so as we're going to see within Daniel chapter 3, Daniel, Daniel's friends really are coming to a place to where they have to decide what they want to do. And the book of Daniel is a great book, because generally when we think of Daniel, we think of it as a book of prophecy, and it is. It's a great book of prophecy. It's so great, it names countries that are going to be world powers long before they're world powers, and they're just goat herders, basically. But yet they are going to rise up and to become world powers. Names them by name. It looks down the quarter, or quarter of time and gives us um, a picture of the promised one who would come. And it lays down the prophetic end of him setting up his, his kingdom. 
And so there is prophecies galore. But in the midst of all that, Daniel is far more than a book of just prophecy. For it begins by giving us a picture of faithful ones in the midst of captivity. Seventy years of captivity. And we get to see that. And so Daniel and his friends are taken during the first deportation. And so through the Old Testament prophets, the major ones and the minor ones, through the Old Testament prophets, they call the people to repentance. And though some were repentant, most were not. And God brings them to a place to where they are in captivity for judgment, for judgment for worshiping gods other than him and worshiping God in the way that they had to. And so in, so in 586, um, Jerusalem is destroyed. But in the first deportation in 605, Daniel is taken. In the second deportation from Babylon, um, Ezekiel is taken. But then in 586, Jerusalem and the temple are utterly destroyed. Millions are killed, and most are, uh, who survive are taken into captivity to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And so they are there, they are to live, and they are to be assimilated because resistance is futile. And so to do this, Daniel and his friends are taken during the first deportation. Because you need people from the originating culture to be the leaders, to be the ones who keep this new people in check. And so Daniel and his friends, they're taken into a new land. They they have a change in their education, a change in their lifestyle, a change in their food, a change in their language. And so they're introduced to a new culture, a new philosophy on how to live, a new language and a new habits. And in chapter 1 and verse 7, that last aspect to assimilate them, they're given a new name. They're given a Babylonian name. And so in chapter 1 and in verse 7, we get to see that Daniel's pagan name is Belteshazzar. And so if you're playing Bible trivia and uh, if you said Belteshazzar, you're good. But the question sort of, sort of comes out, what, what are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pagan names? And so if you, if you want to win on your, on your Bible t- team, you need to know that. But then you quickly find out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, is, it, it are their pagan names because their Hebrew name is Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And that's probably the question you're going to get because everyone knows about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's interesting because when we get to see them in a new culture, they had decisions to make because they were the cream of the crop taken in the first deportation to become the leaders of the Jews when the nation were to come in in full. And so they are introduced to an, an entirely new lifestyle, an entirely new language, given a new pagan name because they were to be assimilated. And so they had to begin to make choices. And so these choices will define who they are. And so, in, so like Daniel, there are three things that sort of stand out with the three characters as we're going to see in chapter 3, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you want, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but I 
to have a hard time remembering that because that's not in the song. But with Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego, like Daniel, first of all, they were young men taken into cap- captivity to serve the king. And so they were taken away from their families and their friends and their culture to serve a foreign king in a foreign nation. And everything about that culture was a defilement to them. And secondly, they knew they were under judgment from God. For almost 800 years, the prophets were there to saying, repent, or judgment is going to come. Repent. And the nation overall did not repent. And captivity awaited them. And Daniel knew that they deserved to be in captivity for a 70-year period. And they knew they were under judgment. But third, uh, thirdly, um, like with Daniel, they were resolved in their faith during this judgment. Because look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Though it's talking about Daniel, um, within the context, it's implying Daniel's three friends. In verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, Daniel made up his mind. And I got that underlined. I sort of look at that concept as he was resolved. He was resolved in his faith. He knew that he was under judgment, is him and his nations, and he made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine that he drank. So he sought permission from the commander and the officials that he might not defile himself. And so he was uh, resolved in his mind not to uh, go against any part of the Old Testament law, that he would please God with his life. And he made up his mind. He drew a line in the sand. And the implication of the the, the greater passage, because uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and and Abednego are a part of this, that they did the same with them. And lastly, like Daniel, they were all blessed by God and impressed the king after their training. Because in chapter 1, verses 17 through verse 20, these four youths, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge, intelligence, and every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel had one one additional step. He could uh, understand visions and dreams. But they were bright. Not only were, were they naturally bright, God blessed them with additional knowledge that their, the things that they said were... Um, it stood out in the crowd, because in verse 20, and as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all of his people, the magicians, the conjurers who were in his realm. Basically, he's saying, if you wanted to know something, these are the four guys that you would go to. And so that's at the heart of when we come to chapter 3, um, We found that at the beginning of chapter 3, Daniel is not mentioned here because he's probably within the king's court, because this is away from the king's court. But in chapter 3, we begin to see that the choices that, that they make really come to a test. How faithful were they going to be when everything was on the line? And when I come when I came to this one passage, 
I begin to sort of see similarities from when I preached through Peter, both 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And I began to see similarities to what we are going through now on how really the church is under attack from every aspect. And so living the Christian life is tough. It's difficult. You throw in the persecution angle in it, it almost makes you want to crawl under a rock and say, I give up, I'm done. So how do you live a life of faith in the midst of a trial, that kind of trial? And as we're going to see, it's a fiery trial, one in which it's difficult when you put everything on the line. And so when I begin to see things, I begin to see other great men in church history, like John Huss was burnt at the stake. Tyndale was burnt at the stake. Would I be able to do the same from my faith to say that there's a line that I put into the sand to please God with every part of my being? Will I be able to, by God's grace, stand firm in the convictions that God has given to me? In, in, in God's word, with, with his um, convictions that he, that he has, will I be able to endure? And so we begin to get a glimpse of this through the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so preaching through a narrative, I found out, is very different than going through like the New Testament. Because going through the New Testament, you got all these nuances. But when you go through a story, you sort of pull out the, uh, the main points. And so we will be looking at all 30 verses because I have to get this done in one message because I'm not scheduled to come back yet. So that's okay. And so we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel chapter 3 opens up with the king's golden image, as you already know. But put aside what you already know about the story, and we're going to see nuances of things that are going on. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see the king's image. It begins by saying, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and his width was six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Now, this event probably is about nine years after what has just concluded in Daniel chapter 2. Because in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember the story, there was this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And in this dream, he was bothered by it to his core. But either he did not remember the dream or he was testing uh, the people that were around him to give him understanding of the dream. And so he says, I had this dream, but I want you to tell me what it is and what it means. And so in chapter 2, in verse 2, he calls the ghostbusters, the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. And so no one could do it because they kept saying, well, you got to tell us, give us something so that we can tell you. And the king said, I'm not going to give you uh, anything at all. And so he was going to put all of them to death, which included the men from Israel because they were the wise men too that, that stood out. And so Daniel finally uh, appears on, on the scene and tells the king exactly what the dream was, but exactly uh, what it meant. 
So that by the end of chapter 2, the king is praising the God of Israel. That he is the most powerful God um, above their gods and how he has the power and strength and glory. And so that's how, um, that's how uh, chapter 2 ends. It's about nine years later. And so after, after, nine, after nine years, the, uh, the specialness, the impact of the dream lessens. Because in that dream, at the heart of, of what was going on was there's a statue. This statue had a head of gold, a torso and arms of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And Daniel begins to, to tell them of four empires, world powers, that were going to come on the scene and how Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. He was really going to be the mightiest one. And after nine years, uh, the impact of the God of Israel being the God sort of lessened. And he begins to sort of probably had the impact that I liked that image of a statue, that I was the head that I heard about. And so he creates this statue of him, of, of, uh, probably himself, this image of gold, which was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. It was huge. Now, it probably was not a solid gold statue because you don't have that much gold in one place at one time. But it was probably a wooden statue, and, and they put sheets of gold on it. And everything about the Babylonian Empire was magnificent. So when he made the statue, it was at great expense to Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm sure it was the greatest-looking statue there ever was. And so statues represented greatness and glory and accomplishments. And there were many kings in human history that, are, that they say that they are great, but they didn't accomplish much. But when you look at what Nebuchadnezzar accomplished, he was great. He was truly one of the world's great empires. His decisions were never questions. His orders were fully carried out. He expanded his nation's borders of his kingdom. There was immense wealth and prosperity to the people in their lives. He defeated the greatest of nations at the time, and he was the sole world power and authority. No one could come against him. And so why not? I'm great. No matter what I do, it's great. We're going to have a statue so you can bow down and worship me to commemorate him. And so right at the beginning, we begin to see that he is forgetting about his statement about how great the God of Israel was and that he was to be worshipped. And as, the, as this verse begins to open up, we begin to see that he set it up in the plain of Dura. Well, that may not mean much to you, but that is where Shinar comes from. That is the place when they, con when they conquered Jerusalem and destroyed it, they took all of the uh, implements that were a part of the temple, all the gold, the candlesticks, and everything that was worshipped, and they brought it to their main place of worship. Shinar was also mentioned way back in Genesis chapter 11, because if you remember the story in Genesis chapter 11, that's where the Tower of Babel was. 
That, were, that was the place where man wanted to exalt himself to be like God. And so the, it was a center of worship there. And it was a statement that Nebuchadnezzar was placing himself on the same level as the gods. And so this statue, this symbol of great power and strength that Babylon had was centered around its leader. And so in chapter 1, Daniel begins to give us a story of his people because they needed to realize and remember that God was in complete control, that he was sovereign. And because of that, they could trust him during the 70 years of captivity. So much so that when the prophecy begins to get unfolded in the book of Daniel, it looked far beyond their current situation to a situation that hasn't even taken place yet. And so in chapter 3, Babylon has complete control over the Jews in exile. But God is going to use the situation of three men to represent the nation, to call them to be faithful during the time in which God purges out of the nation idolatry. Because all throughout their history, they kept going back to those idols. They kept going back, you know, even when they're coming out of Egypt. First thing they, they did was they built an idol. And so that idol worship got purged out during captivity. And so God wanted to bring them to a place to where, what choices are you going to make? Are you going to worship me in the way that I prescribed and live in the way that I told you um, that I told you, or do you want to get to the place where you're always going to compromise? Because if so, you will get assimilated. You'll, you'll be done. And so will they serve foreign gods is the choice. And as Daniel opens up, Daniel and his three friends, they were resolved in their faith. Verse 2 of, of chapter 3, then Nebuchadnezzar sent word that once this statue was set up, he sent word to assemble and look at all the, uh, the characters that are mentioned here. And it's interesting because there are, uh, there are at least four areas in which things are repeated. And in the Hebrew language, when something's repeated, it's there for emphasis. And one of these emphases are uh, the higher-ups. There's the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province. There's a little sort of flow to it. And so the, they are they're the rulers that are, that are coming about. And so there is this great royal parade that is about to take place. And because the Old Testament writers couldn't sort of use a red pen or exclamation points because it just wasn't there. But it repeats um, these cast of characters, but it also repeats other things. It's going to repeat the instruments that are used for this call to worship. It's also going to repeat the, the, the phrase set up. It's used nine times in this passage showing that it's the king doing all of the work. The king is calling for this. And then it's going to repeat, to fall down and to worship. That's used 11 times. 
And so he calls the leaders from all throughout the nation to come to a central place of worship to acknowledge his statue. And so the leaders were probably there for a summit. They were the officials, the people of influence, the people of money. And so when these people come, the, the hoi polloi sort of come to. The people, uh, the people live around because you want to see the higher-ups and see how they dress and see how they live. And so it was a grand time. It probably pretty much looked like the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. You know, the people sitting in the stands, and here comes... That's my mind's eye, anyway. Here comes the satraps, and here comes the prefects, and the flags are waving. They're the governors, yay! Oh, there's our, there's our governor, boo. Here comes the treasurers, boo to them too. And here comes the judges. And so that's how I envision, envision everything. And so this royal parade starts in verse 3. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges the magistrates and all the rulers of the province were all assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, so he got on the loudspeaker, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations of men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound, and here comes the instruments, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, that's a portable harp uh, producing high notes, the psaltery, that's a plucking instrument for the low tones, the bagpipes, that's the wind instruments producing Scottish tones, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But in verse 6, there's the contrast. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately, whew, immediately be cast into the midst of the, of, of the furnace of the blazing fire. And so at, at the precise time, the instruments would, would start playing, the pipes would go, you're to fall down and to worship the image. If not, you shall be cast in the fire. So this was no idle threat. There, there was no, well, death by cremation. And it was a well-known thing because even the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 and verse 22 says, mentions two people that were roasted by the king of Babylon in a fire. And so it was known, probably happened all the time. And so, so they either had to obey the king and bow down or be thrown into the pit and be fried. And so the king wanted this, mon this monument to be constructed at great expense to him. He wanted everyone to have this universal submission because all peoples and all languages, all of the nations of his kingdom with no exception were to bow down and to worship it. And so it, it was a call for, to worship the world power and the one who was ruling. It's almost, it's almost a picture of how one day, if you fast forward to Judgment Day, to where all of the peoples of the world and all languages, they will bow down and worship the Son. And they will declare that He is God and none, none other. But here we have one in which He thinks He's deity, but He is not. 
And so we have now in, in verse 7, Therefore, at the time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the pipes, and all kinds of music, and all peoples and nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. It's a sad picture, really, for the Jews. It's a sad picture because because the, um, they, they knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that they were under judgment. And this same picture happens throughout the history of man. Man makes their images. Man builds his temples and altars and statues, and they bow down to worship it rather than worshiping the true God. It reminds me when... My wife and I, we were in China, and we visited some of the temples there. And then we got to see the people, uh, the burning of incense and the leaving of food at the altars, people bowing down at the statues. And we, get to, we got to see that the people were very sincere in their heart in all of their efforts, but they were bowing down to the wrong, at the wrong place. And that has been going out throughout human history. Bow down to the God of the Jews? In no way. And so God has made himself known in creation. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they are without excuse. They at least should look at creation and see that there is an all-powerful God. And at least acknowledge that. And then God would give them more light. But God is the only one who has the ability to forgive man of their sin, of their shame, and guilt that they have, and that it is because of the death of his only beloved son that they have a way to be reconciled to God. Bowing down before any other altar or any other statue is a vain attempt in worship that will only lead to their destruction. And so this is the choice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. They are to worship. And so, uh, as verse 8 begins to open up, we find out that they did not. And so, verse 8 says, For this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. I have the word Jews sort of, sort of circled because that is not a, a happy, uh, happy term here. Because when uh, when the term is used in this kind of situation, it's a derogatory term. Because I'm sure these three men stood out and they always sort of stood out. Going back to chapter one, you had these upstarts from this, um, from this nothing nation. They were a bunch of nobodies and they're rising in the ranks they, they, they seem to be smarter than everyone else. And the king sees this and acknowledges them. These Jews, how could they? Who are they? Why are they? And so I'm sure that during, um, during this time, it must have ate at them. Because throughout the history of the Chaldeans, they hated Israel. And so they were quick to bring their ac accusations. And so they see them, and they go before the king. And so that begins to raise the question for myself. 
What would I do if I was placed in the same situation as them? The societal decree is made. You adhere to this or else. What would I do? Because that same question is going to be coming to the church very quickly. What are you going to do when society says, do this, and no, that's not what God's word said? Will you go through? It's there in many shapes and many forms. So much so that uh, behind the uh, bamboo curtain in China, you know, they had re-education camps. And if that didn't work, you had the extermination camps. And so what would you do? And these three men decided. And it's interesting because when you see the phrase brought charges, the literal Hebrew there means uh, eat the pieces of. It conveys the idea of eating pieces of flesh torn from the body. So when they brought forth charges, it conveys the idea that they brought their um, charges the charges to the king, they were vicious and savage. That they wanted to devour pieces of flesh in a figurative way about these Jews, these people from these Israel, the Palestine area that we took over a while ago. Verse 9, the story continues as we move forward. And they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, and the the instruments, they are to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace, a blazing fire. And there were certain Jews, as they go on in their charges, that you appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those guys? These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they do not serve your God, nor worship the image which you have set up. You almost see the, the hatred in their saying. And so they're saying to the king, these that you have appointed, that you made into prominent positions, they're, they're, uh, inwardly, they're, they're, uh, they're not on the same page as you. And so they bring about in, an attack. And this, this attack was in three areas. First of all, in the middle of verse 12, it says that these men, that you have, uh, have no regard for you. Well, that's not true. They did have regard for the king. They benefited from, from the king. They served the king on, on a regular basis. So that wasn't true. But the next two statements that they have, the second attack was, was true. They do not serve your gods. Well, the king sort of knew that from Daniel chapter 2. Well, that's true. And they do not worship the image that you set up. Well, that was true. And so they go to tell the king that now they show their inner desire is really not to obey you because they don't bow down to the statue. To disregard their means to pay no attention to. And so they're telling the king they really ignore you. They look like they're doing something for you, but it's really not true. And so they don't bow down. And when the king hears this, we see his reaction in verse 13 and following. King's angry. Because a lot of effort and money and, and protocol went into this moment. 
In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought, to the king, uh, brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded to them, saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden idol that I have set up? And so the king was angry. He's not flying off the handle angry yet. (laughs) But give him time. Yet. It's not yet, but he's very angry. He said, bring them in. And it seems like he knows them by name. Bring Shadrach, Meshach, and and Abednego to me. And he asked them, it's interesting, he asked them if the charges were true. He just didn't jump to the the response. And so there there is a respect that it is there. Is this true? And then he goes on in verse 15. And now, if you are ready, at the moment that you hear, so he's going to give them a second chance. The moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, and all of the instruments, fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the fire, the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? So I just find it amazing that he even gives them a second chance because they should have been thrown in, into the fire immediately. But there is an aspect in, in which their lives are standing out, that there was something different about them. He said, I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear the instrument again and when everyone else falls down, you fall down too. And so you won't lose your status. You won't lose your position. You'll only lose your, your life if you don't to it. And so he gives them a second chance. Because what God can save you from a predicament like that? So everything was on the line. If you choose not to, uh, to bow down, you will lose your status. You will lose everything that you have, your position. You will lose your life, and what benefit will it be to you? And so the king's statement is going to come back and bite him. What God can deliver you, the same God that was talked about in the dream in in chapter 2, the same God that's going to humiliate him when he becomes the cow king. And so the God of Israel is going to humiliate the king later on before everyone. And so look at verse 16. We get to see the men's response. Though we know what's going to happen in the rest of the story, look at it with new eyes for for a moment. We see in verses 16 and 17 that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrated faith in the power of God. Look what it says. And they replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. (laughs) Now, they're talking to, to the king. You know what? We don't even have to discuss it. It's not an issue. It's not happening. Verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What a statement. He, he just says that there is no God who can do anything. And their statement is, you know what? The God of Israel can if he chose to. And it's interesting because we know what happens in the story. We know about the other miracles that happens in the Bible. But there was, n- there was no 
precedence of anyone ever being delivered out of a fire before. At least I haven't found it in the Bible. So they can't say, well, God did it before. He's going to do it again. No, there was no precedence. They just knew that God would bring glory to his name in one way or another. And so miracles is about to take place, but when you actually look in the Bible, there are actually very few. There are four main periods of miracles that take place in the Bible. Um, uh, the time of Moses and the Exodus, there were, it was a time of miracles. The prophets in the divided kingdom, miracles took place. Uh, time of Daniel, the miracles took place in the time of the Jesus and the apostles. But outside of that, miracles are rare. And so they really did not know all that much about miracles, but they said that, you know what? If the God of Israel decided to do that, he would save us. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 43. Let me just read the first two verses for you. Isaiah 43 says this. He was one of the major prophets just, um, just before the nation fell. It says, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow. And then this statement, when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear the words of the prophet in their mind and know that God might save them? Could be. Don't know. But they had faith in the power of God that no matter what happened, that they could trust God, that he was trustworthy, that he would not let them down. But also, they demonstrated faith in the will of God. I want you to look at verse 18 for a moment. Because even if God didn't physically save them, it was okay with them. But even, even if he does not, goes on, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Because they, they made a line in the sand that they would not cross. They knew that they wanted to be obedient to God. They knew that the nation was under judgment for their disobedience. They knew that through their lives and what decisions they make, it would affect others. And they said, we're not going into idolatry no matter what, no matter what takes place. It's not going to happen. And even, even if he does not save us, that's all right. Compromise was not a part of what they were going to do. Now, for us in the 21st century, we live in a very pragmatic culture because it's easy for us to have the rationale to begin to think about compromise because one could begin to think, well, Though we're bowing down on the outside, we're not really not bowing down on the inside. It's okay. You know, God will understand that. You know, we're far away from home. Mom will never find out that we bow down. You know, uh, we're, not at, we're not being asked to renounce God. We're just being asked to just bow down to, to the king. 
We have all this nice stuff, this nice house, whatever. But most of all, there could be a spiritual kind of answer that they could fall into. That if we bow down, we won't die. And if we don't die, we could be used by God. Because if we die, what use are we to God? And so, therefore, it's a good idea for us not to bow down. We think that way at times when we're confronted with decisions that we know that would displease God. It's okay. God will forgive us. It's okay. But God wants us to be holy, as you're seeing in 1 Peter. The command is repeated. Be holy for what? I am holy. It's a part of the, the law not to bow down. In Exodus chapter 20, and verses 4 and 5, don't bow down to anything. You shall not worship them or serve them, the images, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. So that burned in the back of their mind that we just can't do it. There's a line in the sand that God drew and they, um, and, and they were there with that line and said, I'm not going beyond that line. And so as time is flying by, we get to see the fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. He, he's flying off the handle, wrath. His facial expressions was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So was he mad? He'd be mad. And he said, get the the furnaces going, and guess what? Make it as hot as possible. Though it says seven times, it basically uh, is a figure of speech. Just make it as as hot as possible. And so coal burns at temperatures between uh, 1652 and 1850 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is where some of the liberal commentators sort of fall off the edge, but they're, they're off the edge anyway, because they actually are saying, well, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego didn't die because it wasn't that hot. Well, the people who are going to be throwing them in in verses 20 through 23, the, uh, his army, his valiant warriors, they tie them up and they throw them in and they get burnt up. And so I figure there's at least th- three per person. There's one at the head, there's one at the feet, and there's one in the middle to sort of toss them in. Knowing me with with my weight, there's probably four carrying them to get burnt up. And so they burnt up, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell, in verse 23, into the midst of the furnace while still tied up. And then in verse 24, we get to see the protection of the Lord to bring his name glory. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded. Why? Because there are bodies that are on fire in front of him, but he looks into the furnace, and he gets to see that these three men are still alive. Was it not three men that we cast into the midst of the fire? And he said, oh, yeah, it was. In verse, verse 25, and look. And here's the other aspect of the miracle. I see four loosed, so their bonds loose, uh, are burnt up. But as we're going to see, not a hair of their head, not none of their clothes are burnt up, and when they come out, they don't even smell of fire. But yet, not only that, there's a fourth person in there, and with the appearance, at the end of verse 25, like the sons of God. In verse 28, um, it likens this to his angel. And I believe that this is 
a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. Though the text is silent and we don't fully know, but we get to see that it is something to where it is a miracle. And it's interesting because whenever angels appear to people before, or even Christ, when he walks on the water to the, his disciples in, in the middle of the lake while the storm is storming, he says, ah, don't worry, it is I. And I'm sure they're in the midst of the fire thinking they're about to be burnt up, but they don't feel any pain. They're bound, they're, they're bind, the ropes are burnt up, and all of a sudden there's someone else in there with them to comfort them. There's... They realize, first of all, they're not dead. They, first of all, now they're wandering around inside and that there's an extra guy inside with them who appears as an angel. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have these appearances. One of them is found in Jude chapter 6, where the messenger of the Lord is identified with the Lord himself. And so the king now responds. The king goes near to the door in verse 26. And he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on out, you servants of the Most High God. Come here. And they come out. And then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the high officials gather around them and saw in regards to these men, the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor their trousers damaged, nor they had the smell of fire upon them. They were as just as clean and unscathed as before they went in. And so beforehand, God can save us, um, either deliver us through the trial or he can deliver us from the trial. It doesn't necessarily mean if somebody were to come to threaten us that God would save us that way. It just means that God is going to do whatever it takes to bring his name glory. And so the king's response is one of great praise. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up his bodies so as to serve, not to serve or worship any god except their own god. What a statement. That last part there, um, Yielding up their bodies is sort of reminds me of Paul's statement in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice. Present. And they, they said, you yielded up your bodies to serve the living God. And so it makes a huge statement for the nation of Israel itself and then for the other people in Babylon. So much so that those who brought in offense in verse 29, the king makes another decree. <laughs> I want those people killed off and their houses be given to the Jews. And so there's brought to a place of great prominence. So Daniel chapter 3 ends on a high note for his people, but it's interesting because for the king... He doesn't quite fully give his heart over yet to the God of Israel. Maybe after he becomes the cow king, he actually gets to be saved because there's, there, there, there may be textual indication that he believes in the God of Israel. But it's interesting because for those, all those who don't know Christ as their Savior, 
they're pretty much like in the same place because you have yourself or your heart not in the place where you can worship the God of all creation in the way that you should. And so the question sort of falls down, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? For there is somebody here, there's always someone here, who has turmoil in their heart. Someone here who does not know fully that they have the assurance that their sins are completely forgiven. And so if you are there today, do not leave this place without talking to someone who can open up the word, especially if they have a name, a name tag on in the back. They want to open up the word and show things to you. And you can call and come talk to me because you should know that God is there to forgive, to give you new life when you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ because he paid the penalty for your sin. And so that is what the Christmas season is really all about. It's not to celebrate a babe, but we celebrate a babe who came to die upon the cross to fulfill the law. But also, it's also to the place where for us, who those who do know Christ as your Savior, as the new year begins to open, what are you going to do? Because times are going to be difficult. Compromise is always there. Because we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But you throw persecution in upon that. It makes living the Christian life tough, difficult. How do you do it? Because those external pressures are going to be there to compromise. And so we are to be to the place where no matter what we do or what we say, we bring glory to God. And so when those difficult times comes, what will you do? And so it's interesting because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are ones to, um, who can rejoice in the fact that no matter how hard the trial was, God did get all of the glory. And so it was a predominant loud message to a nation that was learning obedience the hard way that worshiping the Lord comes at a high cost. The cost is obedience to him. And that's not all that difficult in that many ways. But with the world, the flesh, and the devil, it can bring us to the place of compromise to say it's okay. It's different for all of us, but for all of us, it is there. So as we come to partake, uh, partake at the elements, we celebrate our Lord's death through his body being broken on the, on the cross, through the suffering that he endured, and the blood that needed to be spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to have the men come forward at this time while we examine our hearts so we can rejoice in the celebration of the one who died for us.